All right, would y'all pray with me as we get going here? Excuse me. Yeah. Our Father, I thank you again for uh, this time where you've gathered your people, Lord. I thank you again for a few moments in the week where we can get together and just like look at your word together and look at the good news together. That Jesus Christ has come out for us, that you, God, have come out for our salvation. And through the, the person and work of Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, we are made right with you. And we can stand before you and we can speak with you and we are yours. We are your children. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would help us respond to the good news this morning. I pray that as I speak, that it would be your words that come out, that you'd let every ear hear, uh, hear what you want them to hear. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work how he needs to be in each one of us so that Jesus would be raised high, that he'd be made known to each one of us. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you prepared to meet God face to face? Are you prepared to meet God face to face? Like if he came back today, if God came today, if Jesus came back today and you were to stand before the judge of the world, are you prepared? Are you prepared to stand before a holy God? I don't start many sermons like that. That's kind of how a lot of like hellfire brimstone type sermons start, but it'll probably a little bit louder, right? It may kind of sound like that stereotypical hellfire brimstone type question, but if you've been reading through Amos with us over the last couple of weeks, and if you've gone, maybe you've gone ahead and read through the whole book, I'm not sure there's a better example of hellfire and brimstone than the book of Amos, because it is rough, right? It's pretty much the definition of hellfire and brimstone. And I'm probably not going to yell and get red in the face because that's not me, but I might. We don't know. We don't know what's going to happen, right? But I think that maybe Amos would have. I think maybe Amos got a little upset. And even if Amos, I think he probably did, but I think maybe it's the tone of God in the passage, in the book of Amos. Because as we read through the book of Amos, we've already seen it more than once, that God is roaring like a lion through the mouth of Amos. Sounds pretty loud. And the stuff he's saying is rough. And it's talking about destruction. And it's difficult. You know, Claire and I have three little kids. Uh, They're three, five, and six And I love them so much. I think they're pretty good most of the time. Most of the time. They're really good with other people, in front of other people. I think that's just the deal, right? But sometimes they refuse to listen. And I don't mean they just don't listen to me. I mean they start back-talking. I don't know when this started, but all three of them are back-talking me now. right? I don't like it. But they start back-talking, and they start getting like a little louder when I'm trying to correct them or trying to tell them what to do, and they try to, they try to like outdo me with their voice, which they can, right? And, it, and things can escalate a little quickly. And when it happens, man, when they start back-talking me and they're not listening uh, and they're being disobedient, like I can almost feel this type of like pain it's an emotion, right? It kind of like is it's somewhere like between my heart and my stomach, 
it hurts physically just a little bit. It's a pain that hits me because I love them so much that I don't want them to get hurt in any way, right? And most of the time when I'm correcting them or I'm asking them to do something, it's because I got a little bit of a long view, right? I honestly would rather not even pick the fight. But because I have a little bit more of a long view as their dad, I have to pick the fight. And so it hurts me a little bit because I know that if they don't listen, that they might get hurt. Right? I know from my own experiences that if they don't learn to listen to me, then they will be at risk of getting hurt, they'll be at risk of hurting others, and that they'll be at risk of even hurting themselves. And I love them so much that when I see it coming out, I'll start, I'll fight with them to get them to listen. Right? And I don't always do it perfectly, but, but when, the back start, when the back talk starts and when they start raising their voices to be louder than mine or they push away and they don't want to listen to me or they want to, you know, get, get away and do their own thing, that pain and emotion and that desire that's in me for their good, it kind of raises up and I try to find a way to grab their attention, to like shake them out of the thing, the, the zone they're in. And the other day I was putting one of my kids in the corner, I won't say which one, uh, I don't even know if the corner is a good idea. I just try new ideas all the time, you know. But I, so I'm putting one of my kids in the corner, and I'm like, you're going to stay here in this corner. And the feet are getting on the wall. I'm like, no, I'm not. And they're pushing back and getting louder and louder. And you know how parents do that thing where they count? Like, I can count to three so good. I've, I've counted to three more in the last six years of my life. It's just crazy. And I try to count real slow. I try to do two and a half, but they don't even understand the two and a half thing. And, and anyways, we're in the corner. I'm like, you're going to do it. I'm going to count. Don't make me count. I don't even think counting means anything. But <laughs> So I'm saying it, and, I, and they're getting louder, right? My child's getting louder, and it's getting a little bit. And I just kind of, I'm trying to break them out of it. So I kind of yell, I'm going to count. One, two, you know, and it gets a little louder. And in that corner, like, it amplified my voice, and it startled them, right? And, and they got quiet. And it kind of startled me, too. I was like, oh, that was loud. That was too loud, too loud, Ben. Uh, right? But they got quiet, so I won. All right? Look, I'm not saying that parents should yell at their kids. I try not to yell that much. Actually, I'm a pretty uh, peaceful person most of the time, I think. But, but my point is that sometimes you feel like you got to, like, shake somebody to get their attention. And I feel that way with my kids a lot. But maybe it could be for you, like a friend or a family member, or somebody you see who's going down the wrong path, or maybe it's your child if you're a parent. And you see it, and you feel like you just got to shake them out of it. You got to get loud. You got to do something to grab their attention. But sometimes, no matter what you do, you can't reach their heart. And this is God in Amos 4, 4 through 13. He's shaking Israel, his people, to get their attention. And the climax of this passage in chapter 4, 4 through 13, is in chapter verse 12 and it says this it says therefore thus I will do to you O Israel because I will do this to you prepare to meet your God O Israel prepare to meet your God O Israel like when I read that it sends a little bit of terror through me it shuts me up a little bit because I don't it doesn't sound like something that he's trying to comfort them with prepare to meet your God why don't you get ready Come meet. That's not, that's not what's going on here. Prepare to meet your God. It's those last words, right? It sounds like a threat. And yet I think for us, there's something of an invitation in this passage this morning 
It says for us to actually prepare, to actually get ready, to actually listen to God about what He wants from our worship. So as we get into this this morning, I just want us to ask ourselves these questions. Are you prepared to meet God face to face? Are you prepared to meet God face to face? And does your life of worship show a heart prepared according to what God wants, what God desires of your worship? So we're going to start reading. We're going to read uh, first, we're going to read chapter 4, verses 4 through 5 in Amos. If you don't know where Amos is, neither do I. It's a little book. It's after Psalms, and it's before the New Testament. It's right after Joel and before some other stuff. And they're really tiny books, the Minor Prophets. Good luck looking at your table of contents. In mine, it's on page 1003. Ha <laughs> All right. Amos 4, 4 through 5. Don't laugh because it's serious. Amos 4, 4 through 5. Come to Bethel and transgress to Gilgal and multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leaven and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. The Amos begins this section. He's really just kind of continuing from the last section. There's not a real break, but he begins this section with a great deal of sarcasm, right? And I just want us to be real clear. This is God speaking through Amos. So this is God using a great deal of sarcasm. And this section of, uh, of verses, this four through five, it mimics a call to worship. Like we just did a call to worship this morning. I read from Psalms, right? where we kind of are bringing us in together to worship. It's a call to bring the worshipers in, to worship God together with your prayers and with your songs and with your offerings, with our sacrifices that probably look a little different than their sacrifices then. But the call to worship is meant to appeal to the heart of the people and ready them for worship as they come together to worship. But while these verses sort of mimic a call to worship, they are filled with sarcasm and irony. So long before this, a while before this, King Jeroboam I, the first king that was named Jeroboam, had set up Bethel and Dan, these different cities in the northern kingdom, right? Because the northern kingdom had split from the southern kingdom. Jerusalem's in the southern kingdom. That was where the center of worship was. Jeroboam I was a little concerned that his people would go to Jerusalem to go worship God and then start following the kings of the southern kingdom. And so he set up two new cities, Bethel and Dan, and in these cities, he put up, um, he put up uh, a, a golden calf in each one of these cities to represent, he said, you can go back in First Kings and look at it, basically, put up golden calves, you can come worship here, these you can worship as the God who took you out of Egypt, right? So he put up these golden calves to represent the God who had, result, who had rescued Israel from Egypt and who had given them the land that they're in currently. And this practice, along with a lot of other things they were doing, is an absolute abomination to God. Of these acts of worship of theirs, uh, John Piper says, it is all sin. They have some of the old form that the Word of God laid down in Moses, in Moses' writings, but it's now all a sham. They may still use the, sa- the name of God, but their idols betray them. And God, in this mocking call to worship in verses 4 and 5. 
basically says, yeah, go, go to Bethel. Go to Bethel. Go to your place of worship and sin. Bring your sacrifices there. That's a great idea. Proclaim your free will offerings. Tell everybody about them so that everybody can see how great you are at giving your offerings. You are so good, right? Give every day instead of every year. I think he says every three days instead of every three years. Give all the time. Give, give all the time. Bring your offerings all the time. It won't help because you can't buy righteousness from me. This is, in essence, what God is getting at. The, car, the sarcasm, the mocking voice of God says, you are obviously missing the plot to his people. Worship is not a transaction. Worship's not a transaction. It's an act that reveals who you love most from the bottom of your heart. And God's basically saying to them, like, it is obviously not me that you love from the bottom of your heart. You don't love me. You don't worship me. You worship you and your money and your reputation and your rituals. And this is God. He's trying to wake up his child Israel to the danger that they are in of being hurt, of hurting others and hurting themselves. But they can't hear. They can't hear it. They are deaf to the voice of God because their hearts are conditioned, because their hearts are prepared to listen to the idols that they've set up that are in their heart over God. They're prepared to listen to the idols over God. Is it possible that they are so entrenched in their idolatry that they, they no longer fear God, that the power of God doesn't even frighten them in the least? Perhaps they think that they have the upper hand somehow, like, like it's unlikely that God would actually destroy this city, like God would actually destroy these temples. I mean, this is where they bring all their sacrifices and tithes. What would God do without their money? What would God do without their cities? What would God do without their riches? It's as if God needs them more than they need God. Let's read the next section of verses, 4, 6 through 11. Amos continues. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you, When there were yet three months to the harvest, I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain, and the field on which it did not rain would would wither. And so two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew. Your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Yet you did not Return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you, as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. You hear the refrain, right? Yet you did not return to me. Yet you did not return to me. He's basically saying, I blocked you in this way and that. I blocked you every which way you turn so that you wouldn't get the desire of your heart, so that you wouldn't get all the way away from me. I've treated you like I treated your oppressor, Egypt. 
I've taken lives from among you. I've punished you severely, my child. But you aren't waking up. You're not listening. My people are not waking up. You did not return to me. You know, we've already, just in the past couple of weeks, we've already talked a lot about justice uh, in this series in Amos, and we're going to continue to talk about it as we press through the book of Amos because it just keeps coming up. In the first week of the series, we talked about how, how justice must roll down through us and out into the world. And last week, Reggie said that there should be no community that's, a, that's more present and more active and, and more of a vocal advocate for justice in our communities than that that preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's right. And we're going to keep talking about that more next week and about what that looks like. But, but it all starts with our worship. It all starts with our worship. See, justice... Justice basically means to be in right relationship with everything else, for things to be in the right order and be in right relationship. You know, when I was younger, and many of you may have had this problem, when I was younger, I had a difficult time waking up in the morning, right? I'm not even talking about a teenager. I'm just talking about, like, a younger adult, like, a few years ago. Uh, (laughs) And maybe today, I don't know, but... uh, when I was younger, I had a difficult time waking up in the morning. I probably would still have that difficulty, but like I said, I have three kids named Jack, Grace Noel, and Ansley, and they are my alarm clocks, and they do not understand snooze, right? You can't, you can't get them to be quiet once they get up, um, so I'm getting up. But when I was younger, I had a difficult time waking up because I would just, like, hit snooze endlessly, and it probably had something to do with the fact that I like to stay up late. Right, But in other jobs I've had in the past, like I'd have to be there at a certain time in the morning that was kind of early, like you know, 7, 30, 8 o'clock, something like that. And, uh, and I would find it difficult to stay up late and get up in the morning and not hit that snooze button for an hour and end up being late over and over and over again. Right? It's okay to stay up late. It's okay to hit your snooze button if you don't have to be somewhere, if you're not, you know, obligated. But I was obligated. But this is how justice works. It begins with our, our relationship with God, right? Just kind of like this, this relationship to, to, to the alarm clock, this relationship to time, this relationship to if I don't know, if I can't get up when that alarm clock says, if my relationship isn't right with my sleep habits, then my relationship isn't right with my uh, works uh, tardiness policy also, right? Those things can't be just if this thing isn't just. If this part's not right, then this thing can't be right. And this is how justice works. It begins with our relationship with God. If God the just is not worshipped in our hearts, if that's not the first thing, if God isn't worshipped in our hearts, then nothing just, nothing right will come from us. Because we aren't in just relationship, in right relationship to God, who determines what is right. So it's extremely important that God's people be in right relationship to Him, that they worship Him above all else, that He is the one and only God that they worship, or else they will be in danger of hurting themselves and of hurting others. So this passage in, in Amos 4, 6-11, it's God, it's, it's the Father saying to His children, Israel, like, I've counted to three, I've counted slowly, I've given you a lot of time, fact, maybe I've counted to five, and I, I've disciplined you very severely in these five ways at least. I've disciplined you severely. Would you just look at how I've come after you? 
Look how I'm coming after you. Get the intensity. Wake up. I'm fighting for your heart. And as a dad, I can tell you that God doesn't love punishing his people. He doesn't love punishing his children, but like it doesn't give him you know, the warm fuzzies. But as John Calvin wrote, he says, since the end of punishment is to turn men to God and his service, it is evident when no fruit follows that the mind is hardened and evil. And listen, like God's story since the beginning has always been about writing that which is wrong. God's story has always been about writing that which is wrong, making all things as they ought to be, putting all things back into a just and righteous relationship with Him and with all other things. And God is not weak. His grace and His mercy and His compassion and His abundant love, they don't compel Him to allow that which is unjust to continue. And so he gives them up to their corruption. He gives his people up to their corruption. He invites them to go sin at Bethel, even in his sarcasm. Lets them multiply their sin and allows them to hurt themselves. Perhaps the wrath of God can look like him getting out of our way. And his love can look like his, his, his discipline, his punishment. And so here we reach the climax of the passage in four twelve through 13, it says this, Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Prepare to meet your God. It's not a word of encouragement in this verse. It's a, it's a word of doom. But I think it has to prompt us to ask the question, are we prepared to meet our God? Are we ready to be judged? Do we worship God as we ought to be worshiping God? You know, because church people like us, like the people who are here, we're church people, we're here, we're at a church service. We act like we're coming to meet God together every Sunday, right? And we bring our tithes and we bring our offerings and we bring our prayers, we bring our songs and we bring our sacrifices of time and energy at the very least and probably some sleep. We bring our Bibles, maybe you just bring your phone. And we bring our attendance in DNA groups, we bring our missional communities, our attendance in missional communities. But what's at the heart of our worship? Who is it that we are truly worshiping? Is it possible that we are treating worship also as a transaction instead of an outpouring of love from the bottom of our heart to the God we love? Is it possible that in the place of two golden calves that, we've, that, that Jeroboam named the God of Egypt, maybe in their place we could have other idols that we have named God also? I think our tendency is to start at this point, start looking at ourselves individually, look at our own individual practices and start trying to question our hearts. And I think that's good. That's probably a thing to do. But it occurs to me that this, this here in, in, in Amos is a corporate thing. It's a corporate thing going on in Amos and, 
And what's going on at the corporate level will often expose what's happening with the individuals who compose it. So what if we looked at Redemption Church as a whole? Is Redemption Church ready to meet our God? Are we just? Is God at the heart of our worship or is there something else? What do we overvalue at our church with these people? Could it be comfort? Could it be friendships with people like us? Usually we make good things into God things. It could also be like our too cool for school vibe that we got going on here. Don't laugh at the judgment. What of the American church as a whole? What if we went a little bit higher, a lot higher? The American church as a whole. Is the American church prepared to meet our God? Are we just? Is God at the heart of our worship or is there something else that has our hearts? Do we worship power as a church in America? Do we worship control? Do we worship our reputation? Do we worship our political influence? Do we worship our comfort? It's really easy for me to get to get very critical at this level for some reason. And maybe you have the same problem. Especially among like all these difficult stories of like pastors who've abused their position, who've abused their power, the children who have been abused in the church, the women who've been taken advantage of by their pastors or other Christian leaders in the church. And the list goes on and on and on of the things that the American church has got wrong and all the difficult stories that we seem to be encountering over and over and over again lately. It's easy for me to separate that and be like, that church has got it wrong. They're worshiping the wrong thing. But are we not a part of it? Are we not a part of that church? Are we not a part of whatever like racism exists in the church today? Are we not a part of the reason that others are abused sexually and emotionally and spiritually? Like we can't possibly think that the American culture and the American population as a whole doesn't bear some responsibility for all the abuses coming to light in that in the Me Too movement. Right? It's easy to say well, yeah, but look at how we entertain ourselves and how does that feed into the thing and whatever, right? We can see that. So we can't possibly think that the entire church doesn't bear some responsibility for the abuses that are coming to light in the church too movement. Are we not a part of the reason that these sins continue? So now we can ask what part we play individually. What idols do you worship that contribute to the idolatry of Redemption Church and the idolatry of the American church? And listen, if the church isn't prepared to meet God, if the church isn't prepared to meet God, if we have idolatry exposed, then what? Do we get a free pass because of Jesus? Is that where this is going? Would God dare not touch us? I mean, aren't we on the right side of the cross? Don't we get away with it? Isn't that the good news of Jesus Christ? I think those kind of questions betray us because we have to we acknowledge our guilt in the question. We acknowledge our guilt that we're totally unable. We are totally unable to worship God on our own. On our own, together, we just compound our corruption. We just compound our brokenness. And we are just totally 
unable. So is there any good news? I need some good news after that. And after I wrote it, I need some good news. Do you need some good news? There's good news. The good news is the person and work of Jesus Christ. The good news is that God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. Like, think about this. Even though Israel was pulled away, as we talked about last week, Israel was was pulled away with hooks in their mouth on a line and led into exile. They were killed. They suffered dearly, right? And even though they were pulled away with hooks in their mouths, and even though they were killed, and even though they were punished, even though God gave them over to their sin for their own destruction, and he let them hurt themselves, God keeps his promises, and he spared a remnant so that he could keep his promises to Abraham and David, that through them he would save the world, make things right, and reign over it forever justly. And the good news is that while we were yet sinners and idolaters, he came out for our salvation. He came out for us. Jesus came, who is God, and he was born to that remnant that was left. And through his perfect worship of God, his Father, even to death on a cross, Christ did something that only somebody who is just crazy in love can do. He stood in our place. He took our punishment upon himself. He let us hurt him instead of letting us hurt ourselves and letting us hurt each other. And yes, It means that we can follow him and that we can be forgiven. And yes, it means that we can stand before God because Jesus has made peace with him on our behalf. But if it doesn't break our hearts and if it doesn't turn us to Jesus in submission and obedience saying we know we are totally unable without you, if we don't turn to Jesus in submission and just keep saying to him, Keep exposing the evil in me. Keep bringing your justice to reign in my life. Keep my eyes and my heart set on you. You have my attention. I submit. If the good news doesn't do that to us, then we too might be in danger of missing the plot. So here's what I want us to do today. Let's obey Jesus' words and in Matthew 6, 33 and 34. It's on the sermon, at the Sermon on the Mount where he tells his followers not to be anxious. He says this, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So this isn't supposed to be one of those hellfire and brimstone messages that's meant to leave you feeling guilty and leave you feeling anxious leaving, and leave you feeling a little bit hopeless, like you've got to earn something. That's not the point. And if I intentionally like, led you to that place to be guilty, if I led you on, a, on purpose to anxiety, then I would be in direct opposition of, of Jesus, who here in this patch, passage encourages his followers not to be anxious about tomorrow. Instead, I want us to hear this invitation to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness or his justice. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I want you to hear it. Set our eyes on Christ and see how 
righteous and just God is as we look to Jesus. Set our eyes on Jesus and know that God keeps his promises. He delivers like no idol can deliver. Paul says in Colossians 3, to set your mind on things that are above. Set your mind on things that are above. That is, set your mind on Jesus, on God and on his goodness, on his mercy, on his compassion, on his patience, on his love, and on his justice. And ask the Lord to help you increasingly submit all of life to his empowering presence and lordship. This is how you prepare to meet God. This is how you prepare to meet God. You set your eyes on Christ. So what can you do? Well, if you're not, if you're not reading the Bible, like, read it. And not just because you're supposed to, not because it's going to earn you something. Don't bring it as like an offering, like they brought these offerings into the place of worship here. If you're not reading your Bible, read it and do so seeking to know him more. He wants you to love him. He wants you to see how much he loves you and that you were made for loving him. Read the Bible and seek to know Him. Set your eyes on Christ. Spend time in prayer every day and throughout the day. Seek to get to know Him in prayer. Not just to get something from Him. Pray to get to know Him. And that doesn't mean that you can't make your request be known. You can make your request be known. That's how we relate to each other. That's how we relate to our parents. You can relate to your Father in Heaven that way. Gather with His people and speak of how good Jesus is. Gather with his people and speak of how good he is to each other. Remind one another of how Jesus is better than our idols. As a matter of fact, I think, you should, I think we should all make this a goal. Make it a goal to talk to each other about how good Jesus is every time you get together. Something. I know that's a hurdle for us to get across sometimes. But make it a goal to talk to each other about how good Jesus is every time you get together. Like, what if we all made that goal? How sweet would our times be together? I kind of bet we all want it and that many of us just don't know how to get there. So make it a goal to talk to each other about Jesus, how Jesus is better than all our idols. Listen, none of this is a formula to get us into anything. It's just set your eyes on Christ. Just be intentional about reminding each other that Jesus is better than everything else and obey Paul's encouragement in Colossians 3, 16 through 17. And we'll close with this. Colossians 3, 16 through 17 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God, to God the Father, through Him. We're going to move into a time of response, and it's a time to even begin now. Set your eyes on Christ. Set your eyes on Jesus. We'll have the band come up, and they'll lead us in a time of worship through music and singing. Let's sing together. You can pray where you are. You can grab somebody and pray together. But set your mind on Christ and submit your life to him and, and, and see how good God is. There will also be a time during the time of response for giving. We have the tithe and offering basket in the back. And there's instructions there for how to give if you didn't bring a check or cash. 
you like to give on your phone or whatever. And then each week we also come and we take communion. So you can come down these side aisles and we'll have some people up here serving and you can take the bread and you can dip it in wine or juice. And the bread represents the body of Christ and the wine or the juice, that represents the blood of Christ that was shed for us. His, bre- his, his body given, his blood shed for us. And when we take this, we remember what Jesus has done, that Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection came out for us, that this is God coming out for our salvation, and that he has done it, and that he keeps his promises, and he is who he says he is. He's God, and he came to save us. It's an invitation to remember, because we're forgetful people, to remember that he is the God of our salvation, and to proclaim that good news to one another in our action. So if you're a Christian, whether you're a member at Redemption Church or not, we would invite you to come and take with us. I'm going to pray for us and we'll move into that time. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for who you are, that you are full of grace and mercy and compassion, that you abound in love, that you're slow to anger, and that you are also just and that you are right and that you are making all things new. And you care so much about making all things new that you stepped into the world and gave yourself to put things back into right order. And you've made us co-laborers with you. Like as you've called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light, you've sent us back out to proclaim the good news to others. You've made us ministers of reconciliation. You've sent us out to be redeemers of the world, to put things right. by demonstrating and proclaiming who Jesus is and what he does. God, would you, by your Holy Spirit, work in our hearts that we would remember how good you are and how full of love you are and compassion and how you've forgiven us. And would you move us to worship you and to worship you alone with all our hearts, from the very bottom of our hearts, would we worship you. And where we fail, Lord, I pray that you lead us to submit further, that you give us good news of Jesus Christ in the places of our life where we have not yet submitted. Help our unbelief. And use us, Lord, to proclaim Jesus to our neighborhood, to our city, to see downtown saturated with the the beauty of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.